Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the sentencing today of the lieutenant to the violent Proud Boys militia leaders Enrico Tarrio, Joseph Biggs, who was now facing 17 years in jail. Joining us to assess the fate of Enrico Tarrio, who is to be sentenced on Tuesday, and Proud Boy Deputy Ethan Nordine, who will be sentenced on Friday, is David Nywert, an award-winning journalist, author, and expert in American right-wing extremism. His books include Red Pill, Blue Pill, How to Counteract the Conspiracy Theories That Are Killing Us, and Alt-America, The Rise of the Radical Right in the Age of Trump. His latest book is The Age of Insurrection, The Radical Right's Assault on American Democracy. Then we'll examine America's internal colonies of poverty, that trace back to the feudal confederacy, but live on in the legacy of extractive capitalism and political corruption. Joining us is Catherine Eden, Professor of Sociology and Public Affairs at Princeton University, the author of nine previous books. She is widely recognized for using both quantitative research and direct in-depth observation to illuminate key mysteries about poverty. Her latest book, co-authored with H. Luke Schaefer and Timothy Nelson, is The Injustice of Place, Uncovering the Legacy of Poverty in America. Then finally, we'll examine the hype that the Ukraine war is seeing a revolution in high-tech armaments, satellites, drones, and AI, when in fact on the ground it looks more like the grinding bloodletting of World War I trench warfare. Joining us is Stephen Biddle a professor of international public affairs at Columbia University and adjunct senior fellow for defense policy at the Council on Foreign Relations. His books include Military Power, Explaining Victory and Defeat in Modern Battle, and Non-State Warfare, The Military Methods of Guerrillas, Warlords and Militias. And we'll discuss his article at Foreign Affairs, Back in the Trenches, Why New Technology Hasn't Revolutionized Warfare in Ukraine. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, Background Briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now is David Nywert, who's an award-winning journalist, author and expert in America's right-wing extremism, whose books include Red Pill, Blue Pill, How to Counteract the Conspiracy Theories That Are Killing Us, and Alt-America, The Rise of the Radical Right in the Age of Trump, and his latest book is The Age of Insurrection, The Radical Right's Assault on American Democracy. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Nywood. Thanks for having me, Ian. So thanks for joining us, and today, I guess the top lieutenant to uh, Enrico Tario, the head of the Proud Boys uh, violent militia group, he was sentenced, Joseph Biggs, was sentenced to 17 years in prison today. And tomorrow, Ethan Nordine, one of the top deputies to Tario, he's expected to be sentenced tomorrow, Friday at 2 p.m., and Tario himself will be sentenced apparently on Tuesday at 2 p.m. So given that Biggs got 17 years, the prosecutors in the case of Tario are asking for 33 years and in Nordine's case, they're asking for 27 years. So what are the chances, do you think, of, of them getting a stiffer sentence? Well, I think they're pretty reasonable. You know, the judge, judges so far have, uh, have largely adhered to prosecutors' requests, um, partly because the, the crimes are so egregious and the evidence is so overwhelming that uh, that I think that it's, you know, I, I'd say there's a pretty good possibility. I mean, bare minimum, they're going to wind up with something like 17 years, which is nothing to sniff at. So, um, yeah, I, I think that the, uh, the wheels of justice are turning about as we would expect them to. 
And, of course, the head of the Oath Keepers, um, he got 18 years, Stuart Rhodes. That's correct, yeah. So, um, now, the the uh, judges and the juries in these cases have been very clear, and uh, there hasn't been any uh, sort of hesitation on the part of any of them to, uh, you know, hand these guys tough sentences. Well, Biggs, before Judge Kelly today was quite tearful uh, and he said you know that he blamed it on drinking after coming back from combat overseas in Iraq and Afghanistan yeah. he went on to say that the only group he wanted to be affiliated with these days is my daughter's PTA I'm not a terrorist um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, according to the FBI and Homeland Security he is a terrorist well yeah I mean look what Joe Biggs did that day was, first of all, he was he was one of the two uh, lead organizers of the assault on the Capitol uh, by the Proud Boys and their contingent. He marched with them first to the Washington Monument, then up the Mall, um, and there was really never any question where he was from. I mean, the guy wrote a book. Uh, recommending a civil war and then set about to try to lead a coup. Um, Joe Biggs was one of the guys who was, uh, he played a key role in the first breach of the police lines uh, when the Proud Boys contingent came around and encountered police barriers at uh, this key gate, which was the first one breached. Uh, he was with the crowd, and you know he was seen um, on video uh, talking to a guy named Ryan Samsell, who was a proud boy from uh, Pennsylvania. And Samsell later claimed that uh, that uh, Biggs basically threatened him if he didn't go attack the police. He urged Samsell to start the attack. And uh, Sam Sol, in fact, did. He was the first person to assault a police officer there that day and uh, knocked down the barriers and, you know, uh, everybody else followed. Um, he also later claimed that uh, Biggs had uh, flashed a gun at him uh, and basically threatened him if he didn't go do what, what Biggs was telling him to do. So um, the idea that... Uh, he was just a, an innocent patriotic citizen uh, is uh, pretty laughable. Well, the one person, though, that hasn't been tried in this, there have been 11, over 1,100 cases of those that assaulted the Capitol on January the 6th in the insurrection. One of the organisers who was charged earlier in the Mueller trial, Roger Stone, yes. he got pardoned by Trump. Yes, but he's close to the Proud Boys, and nobody ever suggested these guys were great geniuses. So, right. <laughs> so it seems to me that Roger Stone and and that other awful guy from Infowars, who was very close to Biggs, the guy that got sentenced today, because Biggs worked for Alex Jones. Neither Alex Jones nor Roger Stone uh, have been arrested. Uh, which I think they should be. And what do you think the chances are? Because, you know, this Roger Stone made, or I think they were Danish group of, or Dutch or something, documentarians made a, a documentary about Roger Stone, and a lot of this stuff is turning up as evidence showing that he actually yeah. was involved in the planning of January the 6th. So what yeah. are the chances of real justice here? I mean, obviously the main, the number one person responsible for January the 6th is Donald Trump. Yeah. And eventually, maybe he'll face justice. But in the meantime, why not nail Roger Stone and Alex Jones? Well, I expect it's a matter of evidence. Uh, they're moving, you know, they're moving very cautiously uh, with appropriate caution, I think, because the uh, you don't want to take these cases to, to court without having everything nailed down, especially the evidence. I think in Alex Jones's case, uh, the evidence is still piling up. Uh, it it isn't as powerful as true. I mean, the main thing, of course, is that he didn't enter the Capitol that day. 
but he was very directly involved in a lot of the planning and the people who actually did enter the capital. Uh, so, you know, and, and particularly he was uh, he was tight with several Oath Keepers. Uh, Roger Stone is even more so. Uh, he not only had long associations with the Proud Boys, um, you know, he was photographed uh, showing up at various Proud Boys events and, and gatherings. There's a famous photo of him drinking beer with a bunch of Proud Boys in Oregon. Uh, but he also, even more so, was closer to the Oath Keepers. He had an Oath Keepers security detail that day. And some of those guys that were supposed to be his bodyguard wound up, in fact, going to the Capitol and entering and, and now face charges. So um, his associations with them, I think, are probably a lot stronger at, or with, with the insurrectionists is even stronger than, than Alex Jones's. So, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised uh, if they are uh, assembling the evidence to charge these guys, although they may have reached the conclusion that uh, – that it doesn't rise to something that they can successfully prosecute. Uh, I, I don't really know what's going on in the minds sure. of federal prosecutors. So, right, but Alex Jones has claimed to help finance January the sixth, uh, yeah. something to the tune yeah. of a hundred thousand dollars. So, you would think that yeah. Uh, although, although what he helped finance, of course, was the the big rally that day. Uh, not the, not the, uh, he wasn't particularly involved as far as we know in the planning of the attack on the Capitol. Um, but, but, but there is evidence that he was close to the people who were planning the attack on the Capitol. And so there may be evidence of that. Um, but yeah, his, you know, the, the what, $600,000 he helped raise, something like that, uh, was something that he did. Uh, that was for, you know, he was helping uh, get buses for people to go to the big Trump rally. So I see. Not, so, not quite not not quite something that's really not, not a prosecutable crime. I so. see. Well, Marjorie Taylor Greene apparently is organizing visits to these jails where they're, they're yeah. I think they recorded an anthem from all of the. January 6th prisoners. I mean, how much do you think turning these people into heroes and martyrs is working? Uh, I don't think it's working very well. Uh, you know, I mean, it's certainly among, the, you know, the 20% of true believers out there and the people who believe that the election was really stolen. Uh, yeah, all of those folks believe that these are political prisoners and are being persecuted for their uh, for their patriotic beliefs, and, and you know they call them they call the that wing of the DC jail where they're being held the Patriot Wing, and they sing the uh, national art. I think they actually sing God Bless America every night. I'm not sure. Uh, it might be the national anthem. <laughs> they they do one of the two. Uh, and yeah, no, the, I mean, but that's that's typical of this movement. The patriot movement in general is always, I mean, since the 1990s, they've wrapped themselves in patriotic bunting and claimed to to be. I mean, part of their whole deal is that they, you know, by calling themselves patriots, they're suggesting that the people who are opposed to them are unpatriotic, and you know, that's always been part of their appeal. And, you know, as I've remarked multiple times, you know, these guys, uh, it's, a, it's a travesty uh, of what patriotism is. They call themselves patriots, but you never met a more seditionist bunch of people in your lives. Right. Well, just in closing, though, I mean, this all came to the fore in Charlottesville. And Biden claims that he was motivated to run because of what happened at Charlottesville. Yeah, and if that's true, I think he's right on the money, isn't he? Because yeah, America's now faced and threatened by homegrown fascism, and these guys have come out from under a rock. And they first came out from under a rock in Charlottesville, marching with tiki talks, chanting "The Jews will not replace us," and they've yep. just gotten bigger and bigger and more vocal. And Trump and DeSantis, 
have encouraged them and legitimised them. And Trump said, you know, stand back and stand by. So who's going to win this battle? Are the fascists going to win? Well, you know, it's it's important to also to recognize that what's going on here is not just in the United States. This is part of a larger global trend of rising authoritarianism. And uh, authoritarianism is gaining traction out there among the people who have authoritarian personalities. Uh, and so we're, we're seeing, you know, the spreading all around the world. Uh, but yes, in particularly, uh, in particular, we're seeing it in the United States. And it, it's, you know, fundamentally an attack on democracy. Uh, this is, you know, authoritarians are very much opposed to democratic institutions and democratic principles. Um, they don't believe in democracy. So um, that's, that is what people need to understand is that, you know, d democracy is at risk. Uh, I, I, think, I, I think, you know, people who believe in democracy heavily outnumber them. Uh, so I don't think their chances of success are very high, but I think a lot of people are very complacent about dem their democracy and don't understand that it's under threat. Uh, there's a large amount of denial out there about the extent to which democracy is being threatened. And, um, you know, they can succeed if, um, if they... Uh, if people stay asleep, but I, I've seen a lot of signs that people are waking up. Um, but I do believe that no matter what, you know, these guys are, uh, they're determined, they're relentless, uh, they're fanatical, and they're violent. And I think before, you know, I mean, all these patriots out there, yeah, and I can tell you, you know, all of these guys have arsenals of weapons in their basements and ammunition and they're all they've all been chomping at the bit to go to civil war to start shooting liberals there's a you know there's a guy at a charlie kirk rally a couple of years ago in in nampa idaho who stood up and asked to so when do we get to use the guns you know and um no, I don't think they can succeed, but I think there's a great likelihood that there are going to be a lot of people hurt in the process of them finding out that they can't succeed. Well, David Nywood, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Well, it's always a pleasure, Ian. Well, thank you, David. And again, I've been speaking with David Nywood, who is an award-winning journalist, author, and expert on American right-wing extremism, whose books include Red Pill, Blue Pill, How to Counteract the Conspiracy Theories That Are Killing Us, and Alt-America, The Rise of the Radical Right in the Age of Trump. And his latest book is The Age of Insurrection, The Radical Right's Assault on American Democracy. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back examining America's internal colonies of poverty that trace back to the feudal confederacy but live on in the legacy of extractive capitalism and political corruption. Well, I'm going to tell you, fascists, you may be surprised. People in this world are getting organized. You're bound to lose. You fascists bound to lose. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Catherine Eden, who is a professor of sociology and public policy at Princeton University, the author of nine previous books. She is widely recognized for using both quantitative research and direct, in-depth observation to illuminate key mysteries about poverty. Her latest book, co-authored with Luke Schaefer and Timothy Nelson, is The Injustice of Place, Uncovering the Legacy of Poverty in America. Welcome to Background Briefing, Catherine Eden. Thanks, Ian. Glad to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And, and your book makes it clear, as implied in the, the title, there's a legacy of poverty that suggests that it's systemic and generational, and it is found largely in what you describe as America's internal colonies. 
Yeah, so uh, it was uh, about five years ago we wrote a book on America's poorest people. And shortly after that, a foundation program officer approached us and said, how about you turn your lens toward America's poorest places? And uh, immediately we were intrigued by the idea because the significance of place and shaping life outcomes had really become apparent in the research. And so uh, we set about to use uh, the nation's full arsenal of big data to construct an index of deep disadvantage for places. And uh, what appeared uh, when we ranked all of the places in the United States on this index is that the places of deepest disadvantage had been deeply disadvantaged for a very long time. And that is central Appalachia, the vast uh, cotton belt stretching from the Carolinas all the way to Louisiana and Arkansas, uh, the, the, the tobacco belt stretching from Virginia into the Carolinas, and then South Texas. So um, as we began to embed as researchers in these communities, literally moving there, <laughs> talking to ordinary folks, um, uh, getting involved in local life, we soon learned that these places, all of them, had this very similar history of extreme extraction, usually of a sole commodity, and then extreme exploitation of a vast cadre of landless laborers uh, controlled by only a few elites. And so we would have had to have been really naive not to have noticed uh, that these indeed resembled colonies, but they were colonies within our own borders. Your earlier book that you referred to, Catherine, was $2 a day, Living on Almost Nothing in America. And that book helped lay the groundwork for the expanded uh, child tax credit that President Biden pushed into effect in 2021. However, he was scuttled by none other than the senator representing one of the poorest areas of America, Appalachia, uh, yes. Joe Manchin. So... Yeah. Is Joe Manchin then the kind of poster boy for this kind of feudal system that still exists in this country? I mean, here he is driving a Maserati. His daughter ran a pharma company that jacked up prices of EpiPens from $30 a piece to $600. I just don't understand the mentality of a man like that. And I, furthermore, I don't understand why people in Appalachia uh, who voted, I think, in the uh, the largest percentage for Donald Trump uh, in the country, why they vote against their own interests uh, in this kind of feudal way. You know, uh, one young reformist mayor, uh, we spent a lot of time talking to, Carmen Lewis, in uh, Clay County, Kentucky, Man the county seat there of Manchester, said it's almost like Stockholm Syndrome. You know, the same families have ruled really these areas of the country for generations and still hold most of the local offices and the positions of power and and the lucrative get the lucrative government contracts and so on and uh, it is in their interest to continue exploiting whatever resources uh, are left in these communities and it has never been the case um, that public officials in these places although there are some great ones uh, by and large, it's never been the case that public office was a means to ensure prosperity for all. It was a means to protect and, uh, and, to, and to reinforce uh, really the hoarding of resources uh, for a few. So, yeah, I would say Joe Manchin is, is a great example of how that continues to perpetuate itself today in all of these internal colonies. And the politician who may replace him in the next election uh, is the governor, Jim Justice, who's a coal baron. So yeah. it's not like Manchin is, is unique. Stockholm Syndrome. Wow. Yes. So you, you've mapped this area of poverty, these internal colonies in the United States, and what your maps indicate is that they overlap the maps of the Confederacy. And the Confederacy was, I guess, a feudal experiment, after all, during the Civil War, it was supported by Britain, uh, which is, was a feudal country at that point, offering that feudal model. And I was, I'm always been struck by or puzzled by the notion that poor whites, you know, farmers and blacksmiths uh, that fought for the Confederacy were ultimately fighting for the plantation owner's right to replace them with slaves. 
So right. where did this mentality come from? I mean, it's, it, it, as, as, you know, it, as, you, as you pointed out in your new book, it's, it's generational, it's systemic, and it's hard to overcome, as Biden yeah. tried. The child tax credit was the best way to reduce poverty in these areas, and it was stopped by their own people. And, of course, the same with Medicaid ex uh, expansion. It's these Republican governors in these very states we're talking about who deny their own citizens health care, and it wouldn't have cost them anything to do anything. The feds would have picked up the tab. Yeah, it's interesting the ways in which uh, elites in these areas still uh, need to suppress wages and reduce workers' rights, uh, their profits, because these feudal systems haven't actually changed that much, even even as these places have moved on from cotton and coal and, and tobacco. Uh, it's still the case that um, uh, the profits of the elites are dependent upon the, the poverty of the non-elites. So anything that would offer a worker the alternative, you know, to to um, gutting catfish at the local catfish factory in Belzoni, Mississippi, is is treated with extreme mistrust. You know, why give these folks health care? Maybe they uh, they wouldn't work as hard. Uh, the you know the Mississippi governor said, well, maybe they should just be getting better jobs. But uh, when the best job in town is the catfish plant. Uh, or, you know, the, the Milwaukee tool, um, which pays about half the wages in Mississippi than it did when it was back there in Milwaukee. Uh, it, it's very hard for people um, to survive in these in these places. And uh, the, the, their plight has lo so long been ignored. It's almost as as if there's there's a blindness um, that's beset uh, the elite class. Well, there was a flagrant example of this when uh, it was revealed uh, recently that in Mississippi, particularly in the black town of Jackson, essentially what happened was that money that was earmarked for poverty for the poor, largely African-American residents was pocketed by a former quarterback, Brett Favre, and others, yeah. pocketing welfare money. <laughs> Talk about an extreme example, but in naming and shaming, has it has it made any difference in in Jackson? Well, you know, the whole state of Mississippi was affected because that was a federal pro program, but it was especially deleterious in the Mississippi Delta, which is the poorest region of the United States. And indeed, the nonprofit leader who led the scheme, along with uh, the public officials who assisted her, uh, emanated directly from the Mississippi Delta. So her friends and neighbors, maybe not her friends, but her neighbors were, um, you know, were the, the folks that suffered the most from the fact that only uh, during those years, 3% of, of applicants for federal welfare dollars were being accepted. 97% were being denied. Well, Brett, Brett Favre allegedly was uh, being paid for giving speeches that no one can prove ever occurred. And this fraud, though, was found in all of the internal colonies. In each case, corruption had been deep and pervasive uh, for generations. Uh, and so, so this this was one of the mechanisms we identified tying these places to their their uh, internal colonial past. Another was violence. Uh, another was the was the uh, the tradition of separate and highly unequal schools. Uh, another was um, uh, the fact that whenever there was civil rights activity, and indeed these were the all of them, the cradles of civil rights uh, for their respective groups, um, uh, they faced extreme white retribution, uh, the collapse of social infrastructure, the bowling alleys, the movie theaters, the barbershops that had simply closed down, leaving people without institutional spaces to uh, to form social bonds. So. Uh, corruption is a leading mechanism, along with these other mechanisms that uh, connect uh, the fates of these places today to their very distant pasts. So how can, given the example of Biden getting sabotaged by Manchin with the most successful program probably in American history to bring children out of poverty, the child tax credit, 
which was inspired in many ways by your earlier book, $2 a day, living on almost nothing in America. What is the alternative? What kind of government programs can, can circumvent this structural corruption in these poor states? You know, we went came very close with the child tax credit. Now, it's not dead yet. There are proponents on both sides of the political aisle that that are still determined to see you succeed. And and after all, Rosa Delario uh, from Connecticut had worked for 20 years to, uh, before the first uh, iteration of the child tax credit in the Biden administration was passed. So uh, people who believe in this measure should be encouraged uh, to continue, but in particular because of the risk of corruption. So many times the way we fund uh, these poor, desperately poor, desperately needy areas is we send money to local government. And that, uh, or we rely on local government to um, create the proposals that get funded. And of course, elites um, control those processes. And so those ways of getting money into America's poorest places are just, you know, ripe for corruption. Whereas delivering money directly to people is a much safer and more effective way. Um, also, federalism is a big problem. You know, the fact that we run our child welfare, our welfare system in the United States through the states and give them a ton of discretion is one reason why Mississippi was able to, um, uh, Mississippi elites were able to steal or misdirect, you know, almost 80 millions of dollars of welfare funds um, to other to other purposes. So um, all of these, you know, the South has used federalism to get around a basic worker protections, basic civil rights suffrage um, for years, and it's still happening. So I think we have to be persistent. Uh, we have to be specific in our examples, um, and we have to be tireless. But is there a way to vote out the elites? Is there a way to educate the public at how they're getting hosed by these generational criminal elites? One thing that we advocate for are the number of programs all across the country that are teaching young outsiders to run. Um, people need to learn how to get elected. Uh, we think that's a very promising approach. Uh, but they also need to learn how to lead. And that's not so easy. I teach at the Princeton Policy School. I don't think we do much to help this process at all, nor do the other leading policy schools. But you can imagine uh, programs run, for example, through county extension programs that would really support uh, the development of non-corrupt leadership. Uh, Obama also had a really innovative program um, in the areas of greatest need identified during his tenure where he brought together uh, representatives from every cabinet secretary to work on the problems of specific places uh, like Baltimore, Maryland, um, that was reeling after the murder of Freddie Gray. So uh, there are ideas out there. But one hopeful note is that, especially in uh, the old Cotton Belt and in South Texas, we see young people who were raised in tremendous poverty going away, getting credentialed, uh, getting experienced, uh, it, you know, very, very impressive credentials in many cases, and then determining to come back to their hometowns to make a difference. So we feature a number of these new leaders, most of them uh, Black and Hispanic, uh, many of them with PhDs who are coming back home and saying, you know, I want to make a difference in this place where I grew up. Uh, there is a whole new leadership class in many of these places that is just emerging and uh, we need to really support those those new leaders, but we also need to take that as as a sign uh, that these places are have have great potential. But is there a way to explode the myth of of the idea that liberals in this country or progressives are elitists when in fact, and the people that push that narrative are these uh, you know Harvard and Yale graduates like Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz and also Ron DeSantis. So yeah. how do you prick that bubble? So we have a very interesting study we review in the book. Um, you know, after cotton and coal kind of crumbled uh, in uh, the middle of the 1960s, many of these areas began to industrialize. 
and their economies began to diversify. It was quite remarkable. Uh, but this uh, nascent industrialization that could have really changed the narrative of this place was smashed uh, by first NAFTA and then uh, what's known as the China boom, the increasing uh, move to, to move manufacturing to China. And, uh, you know, studies show that while NAFTA is very controversial, it is hard to argue that it didn't hurt these very places the most. So in this case, you know, these places are not the perpetrators, but but the victims. Uh, we think that's really important. You, you've got to, you know, sort of give these places a chance. Uh, but we also uh, cite a study that found that in areas affected by these trade policies the most, uh, almost all of them were blue because, um, you know, folks down in that area uh, believed in that Democrats were for jobs. Um, but almost all of them, of course, flipped red. So we might have sort of done ourselves in politically in some way by supporting these controversial trade policies and by not paying attention to who was really paying the price uh, for this easy increased uh, you know, competition from abroad. So trade policy, I think, is key, but, um, and, and that might, again, um, soften some of these political divides. Uh, but then these places have a hard job because they've got to, you know, close down the local segregation academy and get those white kids into the public schools. Uh, they've got to really pay attention to the fact that the very low intergenerational mobility in their areas is spiking violence, which then further calcifies uh, low mobility. Uh, they've got to they've got to root out corruption and uh, realize that uh, public leaders need to need to um, espouse, um, you know, to, to quote Michael Connolly's Harry Bosch, uh, the idea that uh, if every you know everybody counts or nobody counts. So in all of these ways, the onus lies both on all of us. Uh, to give these places a chance and also to try to deliver federal aid directly to people and not through uh, local governments, but also then to uh, to um, to encourage a reckoning in these places. You know, there's a readiness in these places for this. Uh, many local leaders realize it can't continue as it is. Some uh, have great regret about the decisions made in the past, especially around segregated education. And so uh, there might be a readiness here or, a, a, you know, sort of a, if we don't do something now, uh, we can't survive um, sentiment uh, among the elite class that we could perhaps capitalize on. Catherine Eden, I thank you so much for joining us here today. It was delightful to be with you, Ian. Well, thank you, Catherine. And again, I've been speaking with Catherine Eden, who's a professor of sociology and public affairs at Princeton University, the author of nine previous books. She is widely recognized for using both quantitative research and direct in-depth observation to illuminate key mysteries about poverty. Her latest book, co-authored with Luke Schaefer and Timothy Nelson, is The Injustice of Place, Uncovering the Legacy of Poverty in America. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the hype that the Ukraine war is seeing a revolution in high-tech armaments, satellites, drones, and AI, when in fact on the ground it looks more like the grinding, bloodletting of World War I trench warfare. There's a place out on the edge of town, sir, rising above the factories and the fields. Ever since I was a child, I can't remember The mansion on the hill Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Stephen Biddle, who's a professor of international and public affairs at Columbia University and an adjunct senior fellow for defense policy at the Council on Foreign Relations. His books include Military Power, Explaining Victory and Defeat in Modern Battles and Non-State Warfare, The Military Methods of Guerrillas, Warlords and Militias. And he has an article at Foreign Affairs, Back in the Trenches, Why New Technology Hasn't Revolutionized Warfare in Ukraine. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen Biddle. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And the Ukrainian 
counteroffensive, and many have suggested it's been stalled. Uh, the Ukrainians are saying no, we're just taking a lot longer because Russian defences are so you know heavily mined, and they've had months and months to prepare, and that they, it's painstaking, and they want to reduce casualties, so they're taking their time. But of course, uh, winter is approaching. What's your overall sense of whether or not Ukraine can make a breakthrough in a significant way through the Russian defences? And some analysts, including uh, General Petraeus, seem to think that if that were to happen, Russian morale would collapse and perhaps the whole, the, the, the entire Russian military could basically retreat or fall apart. Mm-hmm. So how do you see the uh, this? next month or so in terms of mm-hmm. that war and how it's likely to proceed? Well, I mean, historically, clean breakthroughs, if they occur, do often create the collapse of an entire theater-wide defensive effort. It happened to the French in 1940. Uh, it was close to what happened in uh, the Allied invasion of France and Northwest Europe in 1944. I mean, if you got a clean breakthrough... It's plausible to imagine that that might cause serious morale effects and undermine the entire Russian position in the theater. Getting a clean breakthrough is really hard. When the defender is prepared in depth, when the defender has mobile reserves available, and when the defender's logistics and morale hold up. Now, so far, all those things have been the case for Russia. They're clearly disposed in great depth. Their defenses are very well prepared. They have had available reserves. There's some debate about whether they still do, but they've they've clearly had them over the course of most of the summer, and their morale is not broken. And none of that's surprising in context. As a general rule, when you get these kind of defensive dispositions, everybody has a very hard time breaking through cleanly. You, You can take ground if you play your cards right, but you know if the defender does what the Russians are doing. Uh, then clean breakthroughs are as hard as nails to get. And you mentioned morale. How much is morale a factor? Because the Ukrainians seem to be highly motivated. They are really furious about the Russians attacking and destroying their country or trying to. And, uh, I mean, there's been some draft dodging, and Zelensky had to clean up the draft offices where they were taking bribes for young men Mm -hmm. to avoid national service. But on... From what I'm understanding is that Zelensky has tremendous support and that the Ukrainians are taking huge sacrifices, but they don't want they, they, they want to kick the Russians right out and, and that includes Crimea. On the Russian side, it's hard to understand you know that they could buy Putin's line that they're fighting Nazis, uh, but I guess to some extent they do. Mm-hmm. So how would you compare the morale on both sides? Um, morale, of course, is, is always critical, and Ukrainian morale, as you point out, has been consistently high under extraordinarily difficult circumstances. Um, Russian morale has been an interesting puzzle. Uh, it uh, was quite poor in the Ukrainians' Kharkiv counteroffensive uh, of last fall, But many people were projecting that there would be a morale collapse in the MOBICs, the newly mobilized conscripts that uh, Russia has thrown into the the war over the course of the last year. And that collapse hasn't happened. Um, Lots and lots of thoughtful, reasonable people were expecting that uh, Russians would flee the battlefield or would refuse to fight. Who knows? There might even be a mutiny. None of those things have occurred. They're not motivated on the same scale that Ukrainians are, but they're in at the moment, the summer, certainly, they've also been asked to do easier, simpler things, defend prepared, fixed defenses in place. And their morale, their will to fight has been sufficient to enable them to do that in a way that has imposed heavy casualties on the Ukrainians and prevented the Ukrainians from breaking through. That's probably not because the average Russian believes that Ukraine is full of Nazis and that the West is waging war on Russia and will conquer Moscow if they don't keep firing from their trench lines. It probably has a lot more to do with the draconian discipline that the Russian military relies upon. 
Uh, the average Russian soldier in the average trench believes with good reason that if they throw down their weapon and flee to the rear, they'll be shot by Russian officers long before they would be shot by Ukrainian infantrymen. So, I mean, and this is not unprecedented for the Russian slant Soviet military. This is essentially the same disciplinary system they had in World War II. And historically, these kinds of draconian disciplinary measures don't always suffice to get you to engage in Congressional Medal of Honor scale heroism on the offensive. But it's often pretty good at keeping defenders from throwing down their weapons and fleeing. Therefore, in this situation, the kind of morale collapse that people were hoping for and that some were expecting to see hasn't materialized. That can always change. If some people are now speculating that attrition has stretched the Russians so thin that they no longer have mobile reserves behind the prepared defenses and that the prepared defenses themselves are getting thinned out. If all of those things are in fact true, and I don't think we have enough information in the public domain and with the West to know, but if those things are true, and if the Ukrainians do suddenly breach some significant fraction of the Russian defensive line, even draconian disciplinary measures might in that scenario prove insufficient, and who knows? Perhaps the long-anticipated breakdown of Russian morale might still happen. Hasn't happened so far, though. Uh, and I, I think probably the betting money is that it won't. So in your article, Stephen Biddle, back in the trenches, why new technology hasn't revolutionized warfare in Ukraine, you say that the Ukraine war is more evolutionary than revolutionary. So expand on that, if you will. Yeah, th there's a lot of cutting edge technology in use in Ukraine. Drones, network communications, satellite surveillance, precision artillery. A lot of people looking at all this new gear have argued that this is a revolution brewing, that all of this radically new technology in use is transforming the nature of warfare and that the future of war is going to be dominated by these kinds of technologies and that the result of all that will be a new era of defense dominance in which this combination of ostensibly ubiquitous surveillance plus precision weapons makes it impossible for people to advance successfully on the battlefield, reinforces uh, the value of defense, and will create an era of future stalemate. The premise in that kind of revolution argument is that all this new technology is creating much higher levels of battlefield lethality than people have seen in the past. That's the basis of the claim that we're looking at an era of defense dominance in which fires overwhelm maneuver and it becomes impossible to take and hold ground anymore. But when you look in more detail at what casualty rates these weapons are actually creating in Ukraine, and what rates of advance and ability to take and hold ground we've actually seen in Ukraine. And you compare that with the kind of experience we saw in the World Wars, for instance. Surprisingly enough, what, what you get is that, you know, casualty rates in Ukraine are very high, of course, certainly relative to our experience in Iraq and Afghanistan, but not particularly so relative to the World Wars. In fact, in many ways, they're lower than what, for example, the Germans and the Soviets were encountering on the Eastern Front in World War II. The Ukrainians have probably lost something on the order of about half of the tanks that they started the war with, for example. That's a lot of tanks, right? So clearly, you know, tanks can be killed by modern weapons. Uh, in 1943, on the other hand, the German Wehrmacht lost 113% of the tanks they started that year with. They lost more tanks than they owned at the beginning of the year 1943. Their loss rate was even higher in 1944. In that year, they lost 122% of the tanks that they started the year with. Uh, you know, the, the loss rates for major equipment types that we're seeing in Ukraine are high, 
but in historical context, they're not particularly unusual. And nobody in 1943 or 1944 was saying, oh, my gosh, there's a military revolution. The tank is obsolete. Let's give up tanks in favor of you know, new anti-tank weapons that are causing attrition rates of over 100 percent to German armor. Um, I, I think and, and you, you see similar things with respect to the ability to take and hold ground. And so the argument is, is commonly uh, held that all this new technology has made it impossible for people to take and hold ground in Ukraine. Uh, and yet a lot of ground has changed hands in Ukraine. The initial Russian invasion was misbegotten in all sorts of ways, but it still took over 42,000 square miles of Ukrainian territory in about a month. The Ukrainians' Kyiv counteroffensive then retook over 19,000 square miles. Their Kherson counteroffensive took, you know, 470 square miles. The Kharkiv counteroffensive took over 2,000 square miles. This has not been a war of uniform defensive stalemate, and neither were the world wars. The initial German invasion of Belgium in 1914, you know, and World War One, right? The, the war everybody associates in their heads with materially determined, technologically guaranteed defensive stalemate. The Germans advanced over 200 miles in you know, a few weeks uh, before their offensive finally ended on the Marne. In 1918, German spring offensives launched with nothing but infantry, really, in the face of modern artillery and machine guns. You know, took about 12,000 square miles of ground. So, I mean, the, the argument that techno new technology is making it impossible to take and hold ground, A, isn't consistent with what we're actually observing in Ukraine, where what we see is variation. Some offensives fail. Other offensives don't. But it's also consistent with what we observe historically in situations where people intuitively think the technology makes advance impossible. In 1914 and 1918, I, I think you you look at the the pattern overall, both in the distant past in the world wars, but also this year and last year, what we're seeing in Ukraine, and what you see doesn't look like revolutionary transformation. What it looks like is an evolutionary extension of a series of trends that have been observable in warfare ever since at least 1917, in which militaries that are faced with very lethal technology, or at least potentially on the proving ground, very lethal technology, adapt in ways that get them out from under the worst of that lethality and substantially reduce the actual ability in the field in real use of potentially very lethal weapons to actually kill people on the ground in war. And the result of that isn't to make war low casualty. The world wars were not. Heaven knows Ukraine is not. But it reduces casualty the exposure, exposure to the point where what really switches outcomes around, what determines when you get breakthroughs and you take an old lot of ground quickly when you get stalemates and you can't, is not so much the change in the weapons, it's the, the ways in which the militaries are adapting to the lethality of those weapons and whether they do or whether they don't do that properly. And that's been true over a century of change in weapons. And it appears to continue to be true with the kind of 21st century weapons we're seeing on the ground in Ukraine. Well, I guess, you know, if you take casualties on both sides, you are almost back to World War One in terms of what's causing them, which is just trench warfare and artillery. And when you talk about both sides, the Russians have lost infinitely, hell of a lot more tanks than the, the Ukrainians, even though the figures are pretty alarming, makes you wonder whether or not tanks uh, will be replaced by robotics. And just in closing, I wanted to bring up the questions now that are arising about the possibility of, of, of Eisenhower's military-industrial complex being reborn into what some are calling the digital military-industrial complex, with now the, the you know the use of robotics and AI. Do you see that mm -hmm. um, as happening in the near future, and that as perhaps as a result of this uh, 
war in Ukraine where all of the, you know, we great debates over whether or not to send tanks. You finally send the tanks and they're not much good. Yeah, I mean, the, the future can always be different from the past, or your mileage may differ. Um, but in, in terms of what we've observed so far, right, setting aside for the moment speculations about what might happen but hasn't, and looking instead at what actually has happened, um, the, the notion that there's been a digital revolution in the defense industrial base, I think is an in, at best an incomplete picture. And so on, on the one hand, software is clearly very important to modern warfare in a way that it certainly was not in 1918, certainly was not in 1943 or 44. Um, but so is artillery shell production right? among in the, the kind of you know, domain of visual imagery of war. One, one of the things that I find most striking about the war in Ukraine is that imagery of rooms full of 20-somethings writing military computer code in Kyiv can be juxtaposed with also prominent images of factory floors churning out 155-millimeter artillery ammunition in ways that basically only lack Rosie the Riveter to pass for something you would have seen in 1943. So, Yes, software is very important these days. Yes, there's a lot of cutting-edge technology on the in the war now that heaven knows there was not in either of the two world wars. But there's also a massive amount of traditional unguided artillery being fired. The, the Ukrainians alone have fired, by all accounts, in excess of 1.6 million artillery shells in about a year and a half of this war. They're firing so much unguided artillery that it's stretching to the exhaustion point the ability of American industry, German industry, British industry to produce all these unguided shells. So then you ask about artificial intelligence. Um, There's some artificial intelligence in use uh, in Ukraine, uh, especially for doing things like uh, recognizing targets that matter in the presence of uh, Niagara Falls of visual imagery coming back from drones and satellites and other sensors. And surely there will also be more in the, uh, of this in the future. Right? The, not, none of what I'm saying suggests that warfare stands still or that technology stands still or that anybody's Military doctrine should stand still. It's continual adaptation that's prevented revolutionary discontinuity. Uh, and so there will surely be more widespread use of artificial intelligence in the future. Um, and, you know, the future can be different than the past. Who knows? Eventually there may be some discontinuous break in the causal patterns of war brought by artificial intelligence or by something else. What, what I can say, though, I think, is that we haven't seen it yet. Right? That, that's not what's happening in Ukraine. What is happening in Ukraine doesn't look like this kind of discontinuous you know, transformational moment. Um, that's not to say one may not come. But people have been predicting it for quite a while. Uh, the, the revolution in military affairs argument has been around in a pretty big way for over 30 years now. It, it got its first major exposure after the 1991 Gulf War and the use of precision weapons there. there. And so for over a generation, three decades now, people have been saying that you know the revolution is around the corner, and yet it doesn't appear to be here yet. Now, you know, maybe it's around the next corner. Who knows? We'll find out. Um, that that's not where my money would be if I were placing a bet. Well, Stephen Biddle, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure.
And again, I'll be speaking with Stephen Biddle, who's a professor of international and public affairs at Columbia University and an adjunct senior fellow for defense policy at the Council on Foreign Relations. His books include Military Power, Explaining Victory and Defeat in Modern Battle, and Non-State Warfare, The Military Methods of Guerrillas, Warlords, and Militias. And he has an article at Foreign Affairs, Back in the Trenches, Why New Technology Hasn't Revolutionized Warfare in Ukraine. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now.